Greetings, dear, dear listeners, and welcome to another episode of The Working Experience, a very warm, open-arm audio embrace and a squeeze. This episode is brought to you by my company, One Circle Media. One Circle Media is a hybrid digital agency and media content creator. We create and design apps, websites, videos, social media content, and physical products. We are artists, directors, designers, producers, coders, editors, thinkers, makers, and creators who embrace story and creativity from design, web and app development, animation, docs, features, TV shows, digital and social media content, to physical products. For our clients, we create content that builds networks and audiences across multiple platforms. Check out our work at OneCircleDigital.com and OneCircleBrand.com. If you work for a network, studio, brand, startup, or corporation, and are looking for a partner to create media that will build, engage, and entertain, reach out to me at John at OneCircleMedia.com. I'd love to hear from you. This episode is also brought to you by an app that I created called Still Believe. Still Believe transforms a picture in your home into video proof of your child's favorite magical characters. With the app, parents can catch the magic of the tooth fairy, leaving money under their children's pillow or Santa delivering presents on Christmas Eve in their home. You download the app, take a picture, and we create the magic. We utilize feature film visual effects artists to transform your picture into video. Just tell your kids that you have a special app that can detect and capture the tooth fairy, then present them with the video proof in the morning. The look on their faces is priceless. Your Still Believe video is created in minutes, and you can then save it to your phone and share it on social media. The app is available for the iPhone and Android, and it's free to download. Our aim is to bring joy and wonder into the hearts of children around the world. Check it out at stillbelieve.co. Thanks, everyone, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Working Experience. Hey, everyone. On this episode of The Working Experience podcast, I spoke with Congresswoman Donna Edwards from Maryland. She spent nearly a decade in Washington, D.C., and has some great lessons to teach on our government and democracy. Thanks for listening. Enjoy. The Working Experience. Route 93 North is almost at a standstill. It's a rough one out there this morning. Snow and sleep. There is no service on the... Stand clear of the closing doors, please. Uh, Yeah, folks, we're going to be a few minutes. We have train traffic ahead of us. We should be moving shortly. Y'all need that report ASAP. Where are we on that presentation? And HR wants to see you. Did you return that email yet? We have a team meeting at 10. To stay late, Bob. Teamwork makes the dream work. <laughs> They're moving in a different direction. And after the meeting, we'll have a breakout session. Who ate my Where are my hot pockets? This microwave is disgusting. Oh, God, what's that He was moving his Sexual toenails at his desk. <laughs> I can't take it anymore. I can't take it anymore. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this edition of the Working Experience Podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of having on as our guest, Congresswoman Donna Edwards. Congresswoman Edwards served as the U.S. Representative for Maryland's 4th Congressional District from 2008 to 2017. She was the first African-American woman to represent Maryland in the United States Congress. She co-founded the National Network to End Domestic Violence, and is active in many other causes as well. Welcome, Congresswoman Edwards. Thank you. It's great to be with you. Was that introduction, was that? 
That was fun. Pretty good. All right. Because yeah. you have a lot on your resume and <laughs> I know just pick what you want. And yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. sort of like free for all. <laughs> well, the first thing I'll hit upon was uh, first African American woman to represent Maryland. That, I know it's real. It was actually pretty shocking. I, I, I wasn't aware of that when I was running for Congress. And um, then, you know, as we got closer and the election, of course, ended, people would say that to me. And I actually had an intern go and do some research because I thought, well, here in Maryland is fairly progressive state, home of Harriet Tubman. And, you know, um, you know, how could that be true? And it turned out that, of course, it, it was true. And that has remained the case. So that's funny. You didn't know that when you... <laughs> it didn't enter your thought process like I'm going to be the first one to throw my hat in the ring. Not at all. Not yeah. at all. Yeah, you'd think in 2008, that seems very late, doesn't it? It does. And especially when you look at some of the, you know, some other states that have had not one or, you know, but two um, members of Congress who've been African-American women. But when you look back on the history of Congress, I think you know, there are a few, little over 11,000 people who've ever served in Congress, about 300 or so of them women, and really only about 35 or 40, maybe even, have been Black women. So um, that is a lot of history to overcome. And so in that context, frankly, it's not that surprising. Um, but, you know, it really just shows you, and most of those women members served after um, the big redistricting in uh, following the 1990 census. Okay, all right, yeah. I, I know it's such a small percentage, but I guess any step forward is positive. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, all, I mean, it's yeah. all good. I mean, I have to say, I mean, that didn't really, you know, sort of define or constrain my service in any way, but it was something that I took note of because when I'd show up at an elementary school or you know, high school or college, the students would actually say that. I mean, especially young women um, would, re, you know, sort of remind their peers and remind me of it. And, um, and so I became very cognizant of that fact, um, you know, at that time, because it meant that, you know, I had to remember that I was living kind of a larger than normal role. But unless you're reminded of that, you're there to do a job. Absolutely. I mean, you know, when I, when I came in in 2008, it was actually right when the financial crisis was starting to take hold. And in fact, in my district, I had noticed while I was campaigning the number of homes that were being foreclosed and really the face of the financial crisis. It ended up that my congressional district had some of the highest rates of foreclosure in the country. Um, a lot of middle-class African-Americans who were losing their homes, two-income in, two earner households who were losing their homes. They had been subject to various predatory and other kinds of bad lending practices and really fell victim to that. And, um, you know, so I came in at a time where you had to deliver service, uh, try to help people save their homes and save their jobs. And, uh, you know, that's kind of an awesome responsibility. And I remember as a a freshman that fall of 2008, being on one of my first sort of big, you know, sort of caucus-wide uh, conference calls. And it was our Treasury Secretary Paulson, the chair of the Fed, 
telling us that the economy was about to collapse. So uh, whatever one's background is or whatever, you got you to handle that. <laughs> right. You, know, yeah. you do. I mean, you know, being in Congress is sort of like, I mean, you know, it's like juggling a whole bunch of different balls on, you know, the one hand, you know, you might have a district like mine that has a lot of veterans. So you're providing services to veterans and, you know, social security claimants and people who work for the federal government. And on the other hand, you're dealing with health care and preserving social security and, you know, a financial crisis. And you have to have be somebody who has the flexibility and the capacity to to juggle a whole bunch of different balls at the same time. So if, if we could back up a little bit, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, where you're from, that sort of thing? Yeah, well, I mean, I always started by telling everybody I'm a military brat. My dad was in the Air Force for about 30 years. And so all of my growing up time was spent living literally in every region of the country. And we lived also internationally. And so that actually frames a lot of the way that I think about the world and my life experience. Uh, I remember telling people that, no, number one, I went to about 14 schools from the time that I was in kindergarten until I graduated high school. Um, sometimes that was multiple schools in a, in a given school year. And, um, you know, you learn a lot about yourself in that context. And you learn how to make friends fast uh, because you're moving from one place to the, um, to the other, which are good skills to have in politics, let mm -hmm. me tell you. Yeah. And, um, and I went, you know, I graduated Wake Forest University. I was one of, you know, just a couple of hands full of African-American students at Wake Forest at the time. Um, and especially among, among women. And, um, and, you know, then I, I you know, graduated um, undergraduate school at Wake Forest and spent some time in the space industry. And so, you know, that was quite a, you know, transition as well until I decided to go to law school. Um, and I chose a funky little law school up in New Hampshire, the University of New Hampshire, which was then Franklin Pierce Law School named after one of the, you know, sort of the least recognizable um, and, and important presidents of the United States, Franklin Pierce, and, um, and came out and decided rather than going back into science and technology, um, I had come out of the space program, I decided that I wanted to go into public interest uh, work. And, you know, that work dealing with issues around domestic violence and sexual assault um, doing a small practice representing um, victims and survivors, and then turning that into doing policy work on, on domestic violence. You know, I've actually been to Franklin Pierce University, or Franklin Pierce College, I guess I went to. You've been I, to the college. So Franklin Pierce college. college is actually different from the, um, what is now the University of New Hampshire Law School, which is in, in, um, in Concord, uh, New Hampshire. But you know, when you're a small state like New Hampshire and you got one president that came from that state, practically everything is named Franklin Pierce. Yeah, I spend a lot of time up there. So I'm not, you know, I, I ski up there and that yeah. kind of thing. So I've been by, yeah, quite a bit. And yes, the, uh, they have Franklin Pierce. <laughs> so. it's, a great, it's a great state though. I love New Hampshire. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, I worked on my first presidential campaign in New Hampshire in 1988. It's so funny how Dixville Notch, Dixon's Notch, excuse me. I, I've been up there. Yeah. It's just so, such a, 
historical peculiarity that, that place has become this. All 12 votes or whatever it is. <laughs> yeah, was it 12 last time around or maybe it was eight? Like at one point they had something in the local paper because they'd lost a few people. Right. <laughs> and they were a little worried about losing their place of prominence and whatnot, but yeah, that's funny. Um, so what, uh, what made you want to run for Congress? I mean, I know you referenced your work um, with your, your law practice and it, it, the idea of like turning what you were doing into policy to really help people on a broader scale, maybe. Right. Well, I mean, I, I also, in the nonprofit sector, I worked on a range of issues around congressional ethics and lobbying reform and campaign finance reform and all of that stuff. But in my congressional district, I mean, I live in a community. Every member of Congress comes from some community. In my community, there were a whole bunch of um, development issues that were going on. And so I kind of uh, developed a reputation in the community as a bit of a rabble rouser challenging you know, the way development was happening, the way that uh, transportation was happening in the district. And then I also come from a district that has fairly progressive, um, you know, sort of policy positions. And it's a fairly progressive district. And we were represented by a member who, at the time, he had voted against the, he had voted for the war in Iraq. He had voted for things like oil and gas subsidies, which are a no-no in my, you know, in my district. Um, there were a whole range of things that really did not fit the district. And I actually went around trying to recruit somebody else who was already in politics to run. I had not intended to, uh, to run myself. And then at the last minute, I decided, because I couldn't find anybody who would challenge the quote unquote machine. And so at the last minute, I was, it was uh, a good Friday, as a matter of fact. And um, I knew that the uh, Board of Elections office was still open. I drove to Annapolis, filled out a couple of pieces of, pieces of paper, wrote a check for like a hundred bucks and became a candidate for Congress. I didn't even tell anybody over the weekend. Um, <laughs> so and this wasn't I like a big family. Selection. So it wasn't like a big sort of come to Jesus moment. Everybody sits at the table and you- No. My family didn't even know about it, but I figured by Monday I had to tell them because then people would find out because it would be in the newspaper and all of that stuff. And I proceeded to kind of run a campaign on a shoestring and I lost that election. It was a real lesson for me because I'd always read all the research and actually in philanthropy had funded a lot of research about why women decide to run or not and whether they run again. And my, the research told me that when women lose elections, they decide not to run again because it's so brutal. And so I knew that and I didn't want that to happen to me. So I decided to run again after I lost by only a couple of percentage points. And I finally ended up defeating an eight term member of Congress um, going from losing by two percentage points to winning by 23. And so a 25 point swing from you know, one election cycle to the next one I won. It is amazing when you read about, I was reading a book about, uh, it was one of the Robert Caro books about Robert Moses and uh, these people like uh, LaGuardia who just, you know, become, you'd always think he was mayor, had been mayor. He ran like six times. Yeah. And he was trounced five of the six times, but, you know, he just kept, I mean, most people, probably 90% of people would give up but, you know, 
if you don't, then, uh, <laughs> but it must be brutal. It must be very hard to do all that and then, you know, have to try to pop back from defeat. Um, well, it's difficult. I mean, I, I lost that election and I just remember physically feeling so incredibly exhausted by the experience. And it's a brutal psychological experience. It was brutal for my family. I mean, you know, the kind of attacks that were made on me or things that my mother had to, you know, had to hear and that my son had to hear. And it was more difficult for them, frankly. Um, and, you know, but I decided this is something that I wanted to do. And I, you know, I ran and then, frankly, I would, I probably would have been in the house for another 20 years if I wanted to be, but then I decided to run for the Senate when Barbara Mikulski um, retired and I ended up losing that, um, that election, another brutal election. It was really uh, tough. And uh, after that, I got into an RV and drove around the country for a couple of months and that was very cathartic. <laughs> Yeah, I can imagine. So you filed on a Friday. Come Monday morning, because we're at this podcast. I, I love talking to people about process, whether they're a writer or whatever it is they do. And I'm sure a lot of people would really think about running for office. So what exactly do you do on Monday when you're like, all right, I'm in this. What's your first call? What's your first? What do you do? Well, so obviously my first call was to tell my family. Um, but after that, I'm an organizer and I was an organizer, you know, when I did domestic violence work, I was an organizer when I did uh, consumer advocacy and, um, and I worked on a couple of campaigns. And so um, I started calling around to uh, people I knew who were well-placed within the district, uh, who knew other people to ask them to introduce me to other people. And, um, and I, you know, because I had been in philanthropy, I knew a lot of people in the sort of political donor community. And I began to make those phone calls too. I remember sitting down, literally going through my, my then Rolodex and, um, and then also trying to remember everybody that I could remember that I went to undergraduate school with, went to law school with, had worked with, because I needed to develop that as my first phone directory of telephone calls that I needed to make to start raising money. And, you know, I had raised a lot of money for causes and for other people. I never raised money for myself personally. And I remember the feeling of picking up that, you know, phone and making a call to people who were friends, but you know, you don't go around asking your friends for a thousand dollars for $2,500. You can lose yeah. a lot of friends like could that. Be awkward. Could be awkward. <laughs> and so I did, I made those phone calls and I yeah. asked people and people said no. And other people asked me questions. And the toughest thing is to have somebody to say no, and then to pick up the phone again and make another phone call. Um, but I had to do that. Now would someone just say, I'm not interested? No. Just yeah, they just they just out. say no, or they'd say, you know, I don't believe in giving to in primary races. So in my district, because it's a very solidly gerrymandered um, congressional district that's mostly Democrats, the fights that take place are in a Democratic primary, and there are some people who love politics but they don't give to um, to primary candidates, no matter how much they know you and how much they like you. I can't tell you how many people 
um, would say to me, you know, Donna, I really like you a lot, but no, I'm not going to give you any money. Um, but you know what? You just pick up the phone and make the next phone call. What, what is their rationale for not giving in a primary? Um, because they feel like it's a waste of money in a primary and especially in a Democratic primary that, you know, you're going to get a good Democrat out of that. So, you know, why engage in that battle when you could have another, you know, race where it's a tighter district, it's a, um, you know, a swing district, and it makes much more sense to invest in. So I get that because otherwise you'd have primary races in every single congressional district all the time, all the time. And that would, you know, pretty much be a waste of money. Yeah. I mean, I'm a, I vote in everything. I vote for any prime, anything that comes up in my town, state, whatever. So I, I think the, I mean, I guess I get the philosophy, but I don't know. It seems sort of defeating. It kind of, I don't know. It's like, if you believe in somebody who, who cares if it's the primary, but. Well, and a lot of people do believe in, you know, did believe in me and they gave to me because they believed in me and they didn't believe in the other guy. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, I think it's a mixed bag. I mean, we saw instances, for example, in this election cycle, this past election cycle, where um, a couple of, um, you know, long time, long serving Democrats were defeated in their races in primaries. And so some people view that as healthy. You know, it's a healthy part of the process to have that kind of uh, competition. And that might be true in a handful of races. It probably is not true if you had, you know, 209 Democrats up for reelection in 2022 and all of them yeah. faced primary elections. Yeah. Was this not the most money the Democratic Party has ever spent on the, was it the Senate? Is that yeah, correct? in the Senate and in the House. I mean, the House committees, um, especially Democrats, raised a boatload of money in this yeah. election cycle. Um, I think, unfortunately, in the House, um, they didn't completely get their bang for their buck. I mean, the House lost, the House Democrats lost, um, you know, seats uh, in their majority, and so it's a narrower majority. But there was a lot of money raised and spent. Mm -hmm. And it's different from, even when I, I ran back in 2008, and that was the year, obviously, that Barack Obama was on the, um, on the ballot as well. It was really just the beginnings of this sort of virtual fundraising where you could right. you know, raise money online, uh, raise money in small dollar increments. I remember, you know, one time for one sort of fundraising push, I ended up for a house seat raising $100,000 online from donors who were giving five, 10, $20 you know, a pop. Well, now you can't really get a campaign started off the ground if you don't have as part of your, um, you know, sort of program, the ability to raise small dollar uh, contributions online, especially for the highly contested um, seats and the more nationalized races. Well, I guess if you have more people giving money, that equates to more voters, no matter how much they're giving individually, they they all get one vote. So. Well, that's true. I mean, but look at even with with all the money that was spent in the 2020 cycle, and we now know that we had you know the highest voter turnout that we've ever heard, had in history. Mm -hmm. I mean, some of that is a combination of figuring out multiple different ways that people can vote, which I totally support. I mean, mm -hmm. however it is that people can vote 
easily and safely and legally. Let's do it. And this election cycle, we saw that. And what's the result? We get greater participation. Right. Um, that's yeah. good for democracy. That's healthy for everybody. Now, is it a little, I mean, I, I like to see, you know, Democrats win the House Senate presidency, but is it a little refreshing that money was not able to sway it as much? I mean, I find that a little comforting, I suppose, in a way, in a broad sense. Yeah, it, you know, I mean, for me, it's, you know, it's the double edge. Yes. Um, yeah. You know, I, I mean, I think it raises a question of where money is spent. Um, I think that still we have campaigns that are spending way too much money on television advertising. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, you know, I don't know if that's the best way to spend a, a dollar when you're talking about reaching people. I mean, after all, you know, a lot of people don't watch television in yeah. the, you know, in that sense anymore where they would even see the advertising. And yet a lot of um, campaign dollars go into that advertising, especially by the political parties. Um, I think, you know, there was a little bit more money spent this time in the digital space, trying to reach um, unconventional voters, reach low propensity voters. I think that that was, um, that was good. We still have an awful lot of non-participants. So we're probably celebrating what may be about, you know, 65% voter turnout, but that still means that 35 to 40% of people didn't show up at all. Yeah. So, know, which is strange. I, well, I know like in Brazil, it's, you cannot get your driver's license or passport renewed if you don't vote. And I always thought yeah. that's not a terrible idea. It would never fly here, but. <laughs> no, but I mean, we could do things that would make it easier. I mean, you know, if election day were a holiday, for example. Right, yeah. Um, if we didn't hold, if election day were not on a Tuesday, a work day, um, you know, for, for so many people, not that people don't work on, on Saturdays. If we had more, if, if more states had um, more robust early voting, mm -hmm. or we could figure out a way that made it so much easier for you to register to vote and then get a ballot, um, you know, if you're registered to vote. There are, all, there are a whole bunch of structural changes that could be made that could actually make voting easier. The challenge that we have is that some people don't want to change the electorate. And I know when I ran for Congress, if the same old people had showed up, that had always showed up in the other races voting for the incumbent, I would have lost. And so my strategy was to change the electorate, to reach people who were not ordinarily showing up to vote and get them to come out. And by changing the electorate, enabled me to win the election. And I think that that, you know, I think the more people who have an opportunity to vote, to vote and the more expansive the processes are that allow people um, to vote, then you don't get the same old, same old. Mm -hmm. and, well, it would seem that there's a class in this country that is very invested in the status quo, though. They don't want to change. I mean, and I'm sure I'm not shattering anyone's world by saying that, but... They're, you know, they're invested in certain voters and they, I mean, there was just that example, I think in Minnesota, they were trying to throw out, you know, all kinds of legal ballots and disenfranchise people. And it's like, I understand politics, you got to do what you got to do, but that's on a much 
you know, different scale anyway, or different ball game, I suppose. Feels a little anti-democratic, doesn't it? it? It's strange how that, yeah, people who really profess to be, you know, these hardcore Americans and that, you know, like, well, then let the process play out, you know, and if you don't like it, well, I didn't like it four years ago. That's the way the ball right. bounces. Uh, even with all the digital stuff and all that, I mean, did you have to get out to the diners, to the workplaces, shake hands, meet people, all that? Absolutely. I mean, I actually lived at, so in the Washington region, our subway is the metro. We have a metro system, um, a, a train system. And I went to every metro stop in our district and for morning rush hour and evening rush hour, I would show up when people were starting to go to work at five o'clock in the morning. And then I, you know, stay through rush hour and then I come back at the evening rush hour and meet the buses and the, you know, the train riders who were, you know, getting on and I'd shake their hands, I'd talk to them, I'd, you know, answer their questions as quickly as you can walking from on the sidewalk till they got to the, uh, to the train station. I'd stop in at, you know, at diners, at coffee shops, um, and, you know, wherever it is that I could find voters. I'd go to the grocery store parking lots and meet voters there as they were you know, I, I sometimes I'd roll their carts back with them, help them unload their groceries into their uh, into their cars while I'm talking to them about running, you know, about running for Congress. And what's what's the benefit? Well, I mean, what I, I there are still people that I meet, even though I haven't served in Congress now since 2016. I will still run into people at a grocery store at you know at the Home Depot and people will come up to me and say, you know, I met you at the train station. Hmm. And that would have been a decade ago yeah. that we met. And they remember that because, you know, when you're, when you're running for Congress, you're running to represent a district that, you know, has a little over 700,000 people. And that means that even if you meet 10,000 of them, you still have only met you know, a teeny, teeny, teeny slice of a congressional district. And so for somebody to meet their member of Congress, it's a big deal. And it took a long time for me to process that, um, how big a deal that is. You know, when I would visit, I visited every school in my district. And, you know, one of the reasons that I like visiting the schools and talking to the children is because those children went home and they talked to their parents. Yeah. And, you know, and they would yeah, say, yeah. Mom, I met so-and-so yeah. at school. Now, so do you think people... there are ways to reach people. Do you think people met you in a supermarket parking lot, metro stop, and then went to the polls and said, wait a minute, you know, I met her. I liked her. She was good. She had a good thing to say. I absolutely do. And I think they remembered meeting my mother. I can't even tell you how many people told me that they met my mother who accosted <laughs> them in a parking lot, <laughs> you know? And so, you know, I, I guess the strategy is you, you know, you use what you have. And, um, and I have the ability to talk to people no matter who they are, no matter where they come from. And, um, and I used that as a skill when I was, when I was campaigning for office. Did you have uh, any unpleasant encounters? Oh, all the time. Yeah. 
Um, I mean, there were some hot button issues, you know, at the time. I mean, for example, around immigration, um, some really challenging conversations that I had around immigration, and they were not pleasant at all, um, around marriage equality, um, around, you know, abortion rights. And, you know, you still have to have the conversations. I mean, one of the things that I, you know, I, I did is that even though my district was a majority Democrats, I had a percentage of Republicans in my district. And I would go to the Elephant Club and, you know, answer every single question, engage with people. Now, that's not to say that they agreed with me, but they also didn't think I was some unicorn out there. Um, and that was important to me. They meet you, they see that, you know, you engage them and all that. Right, and then I brought something to the table. And, and then there would be occasions when they'd say, oh, I agree with you about that. Um, and that's the kind of thing that you can't get, you know, from an, you know, an, a cable television show where lines are so starkly drawn from, you know, sort of one side to the other. And most of the issues that we deal with are not black and white, they're gray. And we have to talk about the gray. I know I read in uh, David Axelrod's book, True Believer, he, he wrote about being on um, Barack Obama's campaign mm -hmm. and about uh, his race in um, Illinois and going to like Southern Illinois, which is a lot different from Chicago apparently, and just people meeting him. And I guess, as you say, he's not a unicorn. Like, oh, here's a guy who, you know, can, at least he came down to talk to us. You know, say hello. People appreciate that. Yeah. People really value that. I remember I did when we passed the Affordable Care, we were in the process of trying to pass the Affordable Care Act. And I don't know if you remember the summer of discontent when there were, you know, protests breaking out in every single congressional district. Well, mine was no different. And I remember saying, you know what, I'm just going to go into the belly of the beast. I'm gonna hold actual town hall meetings. I'm not gonna run away from people. And we're gonna do a little teaching and learning. And I had spent some time, unlike you know some of my colleagues, I actually read the Affordable Care Act, all couple of thousand pages of it. And I'm a lawyer, so I marked it up. I had yellow and orange and pink highlighters and tabs on the side. And I said, I'm gonna hold town hall meetings. And I did. One of them in particular was, um, was telecast by C-SPAN. And I set up rules and I said to people, you know what, each of you gets a, you get a minute at the microphone and you can use your minute to ask me a question. You can use your minute to make a statement. You can use your minute, but you're not gonna get more than that. We're gonna be respectful of that. And people actually followed the rules, even though they had been, you know, sort of yelling and screaming beforehand when I set down the rules and then they policed each other. You know, so somebody was going over their minute or whatever. I mean, people would police them. And we walked through the bill. And sometimes people would say, well, it, it says thus and such about my losing my health care. And they'd cite a page to me. They'd say, well, that's on page so-and-so because they had heard it on some cable news show. And I would open it up and I'd open the page and I'd say, well, here's actually what's on page so-and-so. Let's talk about that. And it was a real education process. And it was a way to like just 
you know, sort of quiet the storm. Yeah. And, um, and for me in my district, that work didn't work so well in some other districts. Well, I was just listening to uh, President Obama, actually, what was it, Monday? He was on NPR talking about his book. And um, the interviewer asked him what he might do differently about something like the Affordable Care Act. And he said, we have to get out there and sell harder. Like, you got to do it every, because he said, you know, he thought, and I would think, here it is. It's good. It works for you. No question. And it's just not that way. Yeah, I think the biggest mistake we made um, was, you know, not having him go on the road and do a road show to sell that thing. Mm -hmm. Because I actually think he could have. And what happened as a result is that, I mean, there were many people who thought, well, it's so great. It should just sell itself. Well, it just doesn't work like that when you're dealing with something like healthcare, where every one of us has a healthcare story. We know our own healthcare. And so it's not like one of these issues out there that you don't know anything about it. It's not foreign policy. It's not, you know, economics. It's your healthcare. Mm. And so, yeah, it, it would, would have been important for us to go out there and sell it. And I think as a result of not being able to sell it effectively, effectively, we lost, Democrats lost the House, um, you know, after that, um, after we passed the Affordable Care Act. And I think that there, you know, maybe it wasn't recoverable, but um, we shouldn't expect that people will just automatically embrace what it is that we do if they don't understand what we do. Well, it's just, I did some research on it for a, a podcast episode, actually, and it it was amazing to see how it's taken root, you know, and how it's gained popularity because it works. And that's how everything has to be allowed to take root and grow. And it just seems even more so now it, people aren't really that willing to do it. I don't know if it's the internet or whatever it is, but like it, it takes time. Yeah, it does. And I mean, and so I think about um, when I think about what we need to do on climate change now and how we're going to have to do some really bold things, I think, to get a handle of this, to figure out how we engage in mitigation strategy and resilience building and, you know, in, in lowering our car carbon footprint in the United States and around the world. That's a big ticket thing to do. I'm not just talking about cost, but just in terms of vision. Um, and if we don't have somebody who's willing to go out there, if we don't have a president who's willing to go out there and really engage the American people in the solution part, then we're gonna lose the opportunity. And, um, and that was, and I think that, you know, with healthcare, it was very similar that, you know, we needed to be able to not lose that opportunity. And it turns out that a decade later, of course, people are embracing it like they've always had it. Yeah. But I guess every, you know, Medicare, Medicaid for all, we just take those for granted. But I mean, they were decried as communists, socialists, you know, we're all going to be under Stalin's thumb. And you just, you couldn't take those things away. I mean, I guess at the peril of, of one's office to try to say people shouldn't have Medicaid or Medicare. But yeah, it's interesting how, um, well, I, I actually, I did want to ask 
you worked on um, the ruling for Citizens United versus the Federal Election Commission. And not to speak to that specifically, but how does one, so you're in Congress, you have this issue or dealing with climate change. How does that process work of introducing a bill? Um, I mean, we could just talk, I'm sure it's a very intricate process, but how, how does that work? Like, how does that sort of, how does that process go? Well, you know, so in a given Congress, I think something like 10,000 bills are introduced and only a handful of them or a small percentage of them really make it through the process. And, you know, for me, a lot of times it was about people in my district or, um, you know, sort of interest groups would come and talk to me about a given issue or other. And I knew campaign finance reform where Citizens United is concerned. I had worked on the issue before I came into Congress. And, um, and I felt I had some pretty strong beliefs about the role of money in politics and what it is that we needed to do. And so when that, when the Supreme Court decided Citizens United versus the Federal Elections Commission, I was actually poised to introduce legislation to try to deal with it. And so I did, I found a chief co-sponsor who happened to be the, um, the chair at the time, the chair of the um, Judiciary Committee or ranking member of the Judiciary Committee, um, John Conyers, and we introduced it together. And we had almost no other co-sponsors. Nobody wanted to touch it with a 10-foot pole. But I had learned you know, long ago from my work outside that sometimes you have to take a couple of bites at the apple before people grab onto it. And so came back the next Congress, introduced it again, had more co-sponsors. And now it, the concept that you know, I'm not in Congress anymore, so I couldn't carry the bill, but now it's in the major HR1 piece of legislation, the first bill that Democrats passed um, in, um, in this current session of Congress. And so sometimes things take a while and you have to have the patience um, when you have an idea that turns into legislation. And you know, sometimes you have people on your staff who really know the details of how to write the legislation and where it fits in the US code, but mostly not. And so we have a legislative council's office that works with us when we have an idea as a, as a member and then turns it into um, a bill that you then introduce. And you can spend time like finding lots and lots of co-sponsors before you actually submit the, um, the bill or you can introduce it and try to find co-sponsors after you, um, you introduce the bill. But you know, for me, a lot of the legislation that I introduced came because somebody came to me with a problem and we tried to figure out how you could solve that problem with legislation. So yeah, that's what I was wondering. So that's really where the root of it or the, the germination of it comes, somebody comes and says, hey, there's this issue and, and maybe it can be addressed in Congress. So that would be a, a motivation for putting the bill forward or introducing the bill. Yeah, that or it, or it could be something that was an interest that you had as a 
you know, outside of Congress or something that's related to your committee. I mean, I first got inter um, interested, for example, in this notion of doing green infrastructure development because I served on the Transportation and Infrastructure Committee and I was looking for ways in which to think differently about transportation and water and sewer infrastructure that would be also friendly to the environment. And I then started working with people in the environmental community and, and, and people who were who did water and sewer. I mean, that's what they did to figure out how it is that you could actually create incentives for legislation for local jurisdictions to engage in green infrastructure. That wouldn't mean using, you know, cement and, you know, and um, sort of environmentally um, intense manufacturing processes uh, to do infrastructure. And so hence the development of green infrastructure. What's, what obstacles would you face? Like something like um, Citizens United. I mean, that doesn't seem to be a local issue. Like I could see trying to introduce a piece of environmental regulation and somebody in a certain state is like, look, my industry is not going to go for that. What, I mean, is it sometimes just politics, just pure politics that is like, no, I'm not going to vote for that because you're of a different party than I am? Yeah, sometimes that's true. I mean, but the, the sweet spot is to try to find ways in which you can bring on members of the other party. And sometimes that means people you serve on a committee with or that you have coffee with and you realize that there are some shared interests that you, um, that you have. And so I very often would work to find common ground with, um, you know, with a, a Republican counterpart on a committee, or I mean with, you know, Citizens United, Republicans just weren't gonna go for it. That is not, that was not their thing. And so, you know, I didn't have any hopes that I would find any Republicans, although I think we did have two Republicans who ended up uh, signing on. And in Congress, when you get one or two, that's called bipartisan. Uh, <laughs> out, of, out of how many? It doesn't matter. <laughs> well, I mean, how, how many Republican people in Congress are we talking about that you got two? So, I mean, there might be 190 Republicans, and but you if get you two. get two, it's, called, it's bipartisan, whether it's the House or Senate. So we're rolling with it because you got, you know, somebody from the other party. They do the same thing. Yeah. Uh, you know, but, I, you know, I, do, I also remember there were times, you know, for example, when I was the, I was the um, chair of the space subcommittee on the science and technology committee, and we had come to a partisan impasse on um, authorizing funding for NASA. I mean, who knew that you could have like a partisan fight right. over funding NASA? Yeah. And we came to this impasse, we couldn't really move anything. And so very quietly, the, uh, my Republican counterpart and I met for coffee. And on a napkin, we decided to sketch out what our differences were. And then we agreed to work on them. And we did over about a month period of time and then we came back and brought a bill together to the committee that ended up passing without any dissenting votes. 
So the process, it sounds like you guys kind of undiluted the process and just went face to face, head to head, yeah. figured it out. Yeah. I think that's what a lot of, I mean, is, you know, the, the public perception these days is that Congress is so bitterly divided, Senate is so bitterly divided, like they're practically slashing each other's tires down there. I mean, did you, is that perception true uh, on like a real personal level between legislators? Not really. Yeah. Um, I, I think, I mean, I think, you know, so much of the way that the public sees Congress is through the lens of cable television mm -hmm. and, um, you know, and also on really the big explosive issues. And you have to keep in mind that on a day-to-day -day basis, people are actually working on things together. Um, it would be nice if we could figure out a way that we could translate that into working on the big stuff together, like COVID relief, yes. for example. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, there is where it does get to be more challenging. But you will notice, I think, in, the, in this last Congress or so, um, they managed to get through uh, a number of the appropriations bills uh, that you know went through the went through the House. Not all of them were only Democratic um, bills, but this is a hyperpartisan environment, and I, I I do think a change in leadership in the White House is actually going to change that construct a little bit. Um, I feel like. You know, especially Joe Biden having come out of the Senate and worked with um, some of the um, the Senate leadership, will have an ability to pull things together in a different way. I think there hasn't been as much appreciation for the role of the legislative branch, which is not the role of the executive branch, and. I'd like to see the legislative branch, call, you know, sort of claw back some of the authorities that they've turned over to the executive because I think there's a little bit of an imbalance right now and that's actually not healthy for us. Um, I also could see ways in which the processes inside of Congress could change that could give more um, value and authority to the committees because at that level people have a, more of an ability to work together at the committee level and right now so much of the authorities are vested in the respective leadership offices whether it's in the minority or the or the majority and I'm not sure that's so good and I know people you know, scream and yell at me, but I think that we should bring back earmarks. Um, I think that we should bring back the ability of Congress, um, individual members of Congress to identify projects, legitimate projects in their districts that deserve funding because that's sort of the appropriations authority that's granted in the constitution. And that would actually make it easier to bring people on board these big pieces of legislation. I mean, if, if uh, you know, if a, you know, big overpass project uh, is funded in my district, there's no way I'm killing the infrastructure bill. Oh, I see. So uh, maybe to translate it to my leverage. terms, leverage. 
So it's sort of like, I'll vote for your earmark. You need a dam in Missouri. But is that kind of what, what it is? That's kind of what it is. And yeah. if you think about it, when Congress did earmarks, it was really a relatively small percentage of the budget, maybe one or 2%. Mm -hmm. But think about what happens. You're able to move legislation forward, you know, for one or two percent that members of Congress who know their own districts, they know their districts better than the Department of Transportation or the Department of Interior. I'm sorry. No, I'm worried about. Or the Department of Interior knows their um, their districts, and so in that respect, it would be I, there's nothing I can do about it. Oh. <laughs> this is called working at home. Yes, yes, it is. <laughs> um, but, you know, they would be able to make those decisions. And then I think it would be easier to bring everybody on board when you're talking about, you know, the, the big stuff that Congress needs to do. You know, that reminds me, I read uh, Charlie Wilson's War uh -huh. years ago, a congressman from Texas, kind of a fascinating character. And he said he was in the middle of something and he was at a party, I think, or something. He said, it's I got to like fly back. King. Yeah. He said, I have to fly back to D.C. I have to vote on this. It was somebody else's for it was for the Boy Scouts. Right. In, in this other. And they were looking at him like the Boy Scouts. He said, well, the guy's going to owe me. So there you go. He's like, I don't really care about the Boy Scouts specifically in his district, but he does. So. I guess that's politics. It's uh... yeah. I mean, I I remember the first year, the first term that I was in Congress, we actually did have earmarks, and I remember then getting, you know, um, a, a a funding for an organization in my district that was working with at-risk youth, and that's actually a good thing. Yes. But there's no way that some, you know, sort of bureaucrat at, you know, Department of Justice or Department of Education would have a clue right. about that particular program in my district that I knew had value. Um, so I think there's a way to, uh, to do this so that we create transparency, that there's accountability, that there's not abuse, um, but that allows members of Congress to have some skin in the game when it comes to these, um, you know, to making decisions about where our federal dollars are spent. Well, and it, you know, it just struck me like that's the function, like you represent your district because you know what your district needs and bringing that to DC and saying, look, this is what we need. I understand what you need. You get me what I need. I'll try to get you what you need. Of course, then there's the, what was it? The infamous bridge to nowhere up in Alaska. Know, we should not be doing that. Which obviously is, is probably used as a bludgeon for people who don't like earmarks. But, you know, for me, it's like any system is always going to have some corruption. I don't care what system you're talking about. There's always going to be people who find a way to abuse it. And, you know, you, you know. Start against that with transparency. Right. You know, so then yeah. if a member of Congress is going to do that, then it's transparent, it's open, and his um, constituents can make a determination about whether he or she should return to Congress. You know, I, I thought it was interesting when you talked about the legislature clawing back its role. And because of, I've heard, you know, and this has to do with the Affordable Care Act 
being before the Supreme Court, and I've heard arguments that that does not belong before the Supreme Court, and that the lines are being very much blurred, that they are not supposed to be deciding, like the, the issue of constitutionality, at least the person I was hearing speaking about it, who was not in favor of being struck down, said this is just a tool that's being used to grab it away from the legislature and have the Supreme Court decide something that's not really their purview, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I share that view. I worry that we're getting confused about the roles of the respective branches of government. And that's true from the executive to the legislative, but it's also true with the Supreme Court. And, you know, for example, I was very much opposed to the, um, you know, the president and the executive branch spending unappropriated funds from the Department of Defense by moving them over to build the wall on the southern border when Congress had specifically appropriated funds for something else. And, you know, and I think that we have to be really careful about that because otherwise, what's the point of having a Congress with appropriations authority vested in the Constitution if the executive branch is just going to take the money that Congress gives and then spend it the way it wants? Um, that's not, that's actually not the way our system is envisioned and it's not healthy for us. It also means that members of Congress get to sit back and not really take responsibility for what it is that our tax dollars are, are doing. You know, they, you know, they can stand back and say, oh, well, that was the executive. I didn't do it. Well, Congress does have responsibility for that. I, I, I always have to shake my head and, and chuckle a bit. Can you, in all of your experience, think of anything more ridiculous than that wall? I mean, is there anything that comes to mind? Because I, frankly, shake my head. Well, not really. So, I mean, I, when I, I told you when I came out of Congress, I really did get in an RV and drove around the country. I camped yeah. around the country for three and a half months. And part of the trip, I drove along the southern border and I did that intentionally mm -hmm. because I wanted to see what all the fuss was about. And as I drove along that southern border and I saw the vast deserts and the rocks and the, everything else and the emptiness, I mean, there are a lot of space, lot, there's a lot between here and there if you're going somewhere along that, along that border and as I thought, and I was listening on the radio, I was still listening to the debates about, you know, the wall. And I thought, how in the world could you ever build a wall right. across that? It made no sense to me. And it really doesn't make any sense if you see it and feel it and experience it. You know, I remember reading, though, uh, The New Yorker had a very long article about Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, people who were supporting Clinton, people supporting Trump. There was an out of work construction worker in Arizona. And he said, I am voting for Donald Trump because if he starts building that wall, I'll get a job. And it was as simple, clear cut, wasn't about immigration, wasn't about taxes. It was just as simple and clear cut to him, I will get a job. And of course he would also get a job if we were repairing that road that goes along that border mm. because it's in horrible condition. Yeah. Um, and yeah. 
you know, and so, I mean, there are lots of ways. I mean, look, I feel for that worker, the same as I feel for, you know, workers who are displaced and, you know, you know, throughout the, you know, um, the Rust Belt, um, that we've got to figure out a way that people can get meaningful employment so that they can take care of themselves and their families. And one of the ways to do that, I believe, um, because it pays back multiple fold is investing in our nation's falling apart um, infrastructure, whether it's roads and bridges and dams and water and sewer, that's a lot of jobs. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we could put an awful lot of people to work and not all of them require a four-year college degree. Now, it seems to me that, you know, we were talking about selling and, and President Obama was talking about selling. Is Joe Biden going to have to sell? Like I remember Hillary Clinton talking about, we're going to get you green new jobs. And to somebody who's like 35, 45, that was a tough sell. You know, they've been working in the mines, oil industry, whatever it is. Is that something that President Biden is going to have to get out there and sell? Well, he is, but I also think we have to rethink how it is that we're selling it. Um, you know, I mean, for example, there are so many new materials for, um, you know, for road construction um, that we use for the roadways that are actually green technologies. Well, those are green jobs, but they're traditional kinds of employment. Um, and, you know, so it, you know, we need to, we need, for example, to rebuild our, um, our nation's grid. We are like over capacity now when it comes to our electrical grid, our power grid. And so, and we need to be able to handle all kinds of different um, technologies that are inputs to that grid, whether it's, you know, water or solar or wind. Um, and we don't have that now. Well, those are our jobs. Uh, there were so many places that I drove around where you just can't even get a cell signal. Um, and the reason is because we don't have broadband um, all across the country. Well, we could use the nation's um, uh, interstate highway system as a way to think about building out rural bro broadband. And those are, those are jobs. And you know what they are? They're also green jobs. So I think, I, I think Biden is going to have to do a sell job. But I think we need to reframe how we're thinking about you know, converting this economy into a 21st century economy that are the kinds of jobs that people actually understand because they're the kinds of jobs that they've, you know, that they've had. You know, it harkens back, I, I, I've read the Lyndon Johnson series, the Robert Caro, and he brought electricity to rural Texas. And he really had to convince the utility companies that they were not going to lose money, that they were going to make more money if they lowered their rates and expanded their customer base. But that took a lot of, I mean, you could show them numbers after numbers after numbers, and they're like, nope. It, so it, it, it sounds like that kind of a selling job, like maybe not green jobs, just jobs. We'll get you jobs. Right. Well, I mean, and when you think about broadband, um, there are so many places across the country that are not participating in this 21st century economy because they do not have access to broadband. That should be a shame for all of us, you know? So, you know, if you're, 
you know, if you're out in, you know, sort of the rural Dakotas and, you know, you invent something or you have a product to sell, you can't really even, you know, sort of get that on the market and make money off of it if you don't have broadband. Mm -hmm. And we're leaving a lot of, we're leaving a lot of the old main streets behind uh, because of that. And so it's a bonus for all of us who just happen to live in, you know, urban areas where, you know, we get the access we want, but we all should also recognize that there are a lot of people in urban areas um, who are left behind as well. I remember when I was running for Congress and I would, you know, talk about this school that's actually not very far from me, it was an elementary school. And here we are in the metropolitan Washington area. And this school there did not have broadband. It made no sense. And yeah. so there was no high speed access. Well, what does that mean? That means that every single one of those black and brown children in that school was going to be left behind. Mm -hmm. So we can't, we can't afford to do that. And so this is a win-win for people in urban areas as well as it is for people in rural areas. And as you said, it really is just a job. You know, I, I saw, I, I've heard uh, Lindsey Graham uh, out there. I mean, he went from calling the president a racist and a demagogue to now sort of spearheading his uh, fraudulent, you know, his claims of fraud and blah, blah, blah. And then there's a video of him on the Senate floor giving Kamal Harris a fist bump. So how much of politics is, I, I mean, I don't know if you can explain that one, like what his motivations are. And also, like, how much of politics is optics? Yeah, optics or hypocrisy. Mm. Um, you know, I, it, you know, that's a that's a tough one to explain. I mean, I do think, I think with Lindsay, I don't know what the story is there. I have known him. I've actually worked on a you know committee or two uh, with him outside of um, outside of the, the House and Senate, and so he remains just an utter disappointment, really. Um, but I think television does a lot of things, right? When you're on the floor, whether it's the House or Senate, every Senator, every House member knows where every camera is located in those chambers. <laughs> and so I suppose Lindsay could have given Senator Harris a fist bump back in the back of the uh, chamber, mm -hmm. but he didn't. He yeah. did where it was in fact visible. Um, and so, yeah, there's, you know, optics and, you know, optics born in hypocrisy on that one. And there's a lot of hypocrisy going on right now. People who um, say one thing publicly about whether this election is settled or not, and that Joe Biden is the president-elect and Kamala Harris the vice president-elect, and those who whisper privately that they know that it's settled or they, you know, call their peers or they even place a call into Joe Biden himself just don't want don't want them to tell anyone um, because they're afraid of angering this president or becoming part of his Twitter ire. And um, that's actually not healthy for us. And I think the rest of the world is probably watching, you know, shaking their heads. Uh, about what's going on on here. So we've got to get a handle of this because otherwise it's just very, it's dangerous. And I hate it that our children 
are, you know, seeing this election and the way that it's conducted um, as their example of what happens in a democracy. How long has Lindsey Graham been in the Senate? Oh, gosh, I, I can't remember, but it's been a long time. It's probably 20 years, I want to say. I can't remember. I mean, is he honestly afraid of Donald Trump just criticizing him on Twitter? Well, now he shouldn't be because he just won his election. He yeah, just, that's what I don't understand. Then why is he still shilling for this guy? I don't know. I mean, I think part of it is once you're once you're already down in that hole, I mean, yeah. yeah. You know, it's it's easier to I guess keep digging than it is to climb out. Are there people in the Senate, in the Congress and whatnot who have no core beliefs? Like they just they want to hang on to their office and they just don't really care about issues? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's hard to say. What I will say is that I think most people first run for office and win their elections believing that they're going to make some kind of change. Now, I'm not saying that I agree with the change that everybody believes they're going to make, mm -hmm. but I, I think that they come with good intent. And for some, something happens in between. And maybe it's the hanging out with um, you know, that part of the DC, you know, kind of um, infrastructure, or maybe it, or it, I don't know what it is, but something happens. Uh, but I don't think that happens to most people. Mm -hmm. The problem is that, you know, it is the one thing that people see, that the public sees. And it then becomes the story of the entire institution. I mean, I'm very concerned that, you know, we just don't have as much confidence or trust in the institution of governance that we once had. And some of that is because we're not operating on the same basic facts. You know, it's not like, you know, Walter Cronkite is telling us what to think and, and you know, and not necessarily what to think, but you know, sort of what the news is every night and we're all listening to the same thing. And, um, you know, and as a result, people get, you know, they get waylaid. I mean, I'm worried about the Republican Party. I like the idea of Democrats having a real opposition. And I just don't think that's what it is right now. I think it is, you know, it's frayed, it's fractured, um, you know, it's, it's imploding. Mm -hmm. And, um, somebody's got to get it back. I mean, that's not my job, but someone to, to get it back. I mean, we have, you know, we, I mean, Congress just elected two conspiracy theorists. Uh, the woman from Georgia, from Georgia. And I don't know the other one. Yeah, the other one, I can't remember where she's from. QAnon sort of ish. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, these, even five years ago, these people would have been even on the fringes of the internet. Right. And never mind, like, mainstream. The fact that they're even mentioned in the mainstream. Well, there was the guy who showed up at the pizza place, that whole Hillary Clinton right. the, child's trafficking thing. Like, I mean, it is a bizarre thing, and yet it's actually, one, it's being, you know, sort of replayed, retweeted, and quoted yeah. by the President of the United States. Yeah. Um, and and now, you know, in the midst of Congress, so I don't actually know what that's going to do to the Republican caucus. How does that change it? How does it? I don't know. I don't know what that looks like in a debate on the floor. Um, so this is going to be completely new territory. 
Well, you know, I live in Massachusetts, which, you know, I think we were the only state that voted for George McGovern. We voted, we had Michael Dukakis, but I see Trump signs around here. My neighbor, he's two houses over, had one. So when people think of Massachusetts as this liberal bastion, I mean, Cambridge, Harvard, yeah, maybe, but you go 15 miles outside of that, uh, that area, you see very different uh, the same thing in Maryland. Yeah. Same yeah, thing can, in Maryland. Yeah. Um, That's strange. Well, just uh, this has been great. I, I just wanted to wrap it up on a positive note. What do you find? What did you find? What do you find as the most positive aspect or positive possibilities of good governance? Good governance. Uh, a a a legislature that is there and a Supreme Court and an executive that are there for the American people. What, what's the positive things that they can do? So I'm glad that we're ending on this note because I really have to say that even with all of its challenges, I just feel so rewarded to enable to serve in the Congress because I could see on a day-to-day -day basis the difference that one member of Congress can make in people's lives. Um, whether it's a child or, you know, a veteran or, you know, a, a senior trying to get their social security on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think that there, there are opportunities. Um, and I think those opportunities have been um, highlighted by the fact that we've had four years of the Trump administration and that it offers an opportunity to set the scales back again. And to, um, you know, I think that they're just like post Watergate, I'm a post Watergate, you know, young person. Mm -hmm. And um, there were opportunities to make reforms so that we didn't repeat those same mistakes. I think that we can do those too, so that we can have some deep systemic structural changes that will make sure that we don't have a repeat of some of the abuses that I think have taken place um, over these last four years. That's a positive because it means that government can work. And also that we, clo we are closing out this election I think not having blown up our entire system and um, showing that in fact, we could have a free, fair and secure election where 150 million people cast their votes for or against somebody. And we will have a peaceful transfer of power just like we've done for the last, whatever it is, 223 um, years. Um, those are really positive things because it shows the resilience of our system. And so I actually have confidence that we can actually then tackle some of the big problems because we know that structurally we're sound. Not I guess it's been hit like by an atom bomb and it still survived. Yep. I'm not sure he was the worst president in history. You could probably go back a bit. I would say of modern times, but yeah, it really sustained a direct hit and stayed afloat. Right, <laughs> and, 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 you know, and, and the fact is that um, we learned a lot mm -hmm. from this. 
and we're not perfect either. So, I mean, we still have a lot of problems out there, but we know that we have a system that functions in a way that we have some prospect of fixing some of them. But, you know, I remember a friend of mine, um, this is 25 years ago, interned at a Senator's office in DC and she knew somebody from Strom Thurmond's office and asked one time, how does that guy keep getting reelected? I mean, he's, he ran on being a segregationist, a racist. And the person who worked in his office said, everyone gets a call back. Everyone. If you, you know, voted for him or you didn't, you got a pothole, you got a light out, water, everyone gets a call back. I thought that, that personal touch just goes such a long way, even for someone like him. Right. Yeah. So. Well, I want to get back to a time where there was a time where everybody said, where people said, I love my member of Congress. I just think the rest of them are horrible. Right. But now we're at a time where people just say all of them are horrible. And so we need to like, you know, sort of inch back um, to a, a place where we actually believe in the people who represent us and that they really are represent our, representing our interests and that we feel confident that they can do the job so that we don't have to we're representative government, representative republic, so that we don't have to pay attention to it every single minute of every single day. Right, that it works. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Congresswoman Donna Edwards, thank you so much for doing this. It's really enlightening. I know our listeners are going to get a lot out of it. Thank you. Appreciate right. it. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of The Working Experience. We'd like to thank our sponsors, One Circle Media and the Still Believe app the only app that delivers video proof of the Tooth Fairy and Santa by simply taking a picture. Download the app at stillbelieve.co today and amaze your kids. And if you work for a studio, network, startup, or corporation and are looking for a partner to create media that will build, engage, and entertain your audience, reach out to me at john at onecirclemedia.com. I would love to hear from you. And that's it. The end. The sweet end. Until our next audio encounter.